I can make a good living working with my hands and building something that at the end of the day that I can be proud of. That's the voice of Ken DeCoste, co-owner of Materia Millwork. And I'm excited to talk with him right after a quick word from our sponsors. Hey everyone, what do you know about Shaper Tools? Specifically, the Shaper Origin. As a listener to this show, you can try a Shaper Origin risk-free for 30 days in your own shop. That's right, in your own shop. Just by visiting shapertools.com forward slash furniture brand to learn more. The handheld CNC router that has brought digital precision and efficiency of workflow to so many people is yours to try risk-free. Use it to tackle your joinery, your cabinetry, your hardware installations, and more with speed, precision, and the reliability your business needs. If you want to learn more or to give it a risk-free 30-day try, just visit shapertools.com forward slash furniture brand or check the link in the show notes. And now on with the episode. Hello and welcome to Building a Furniture Brand with Ethan Abramson, the show that talks about the business behind the furniture business. On this episode, I sit down with Ken DeCoste, co-owner of the Massachusetts-based furniture company, Materia Millwork. Be a sponge to the knowledge around you. That's how you learn and how you grow. And when Ken says this, he knows what he's talking about. Growing up in the industry and working in many shops during his career, he has built a very impressive business. But the furniture company that he has now, with five employees and a fully booked out calendar, even though he built it, didn't start out as his. And the journey he took to get there is definitely one you're going to want to hear. Follow along as we talk about why the trades are making a comeback, how to treat your employees right, when it's okay to tell your clients no, and much more. So let's jump right in and hear about his story in his own words. So like a lot of people in this industry, I believe, my father was a carpenter and I was around it from a very young age. I remember being, you know, a young child and going to work with him. You know, at that time it was, he was like framing houses and and doing things like that. So I would go to like, construction sites and pick up trash. And, you know, of course, as I got older, the responsibilities and the ability to use, you know, more tools came into play. And before you knew it, I was just a young kid or a teenager working with a ton of different power tools, uh, of course, all under my father's supervision until it became the time where I could kind of step away from being under his watch and do things on my own. And, you know, growing up, it was like summers from school, vacations, anything like that. I would go to work with him quite a bit. Then when it actually came time to graduate high school, leave school, uh, I went to college for photography, which is a surprise. Um, I actually didn't want to do anything in construction. You know, it was always kind of a fallback for me, the building, being able to use the tools, working with the wood. Uh, I didn't want to do it. And I think we, we can probably get to it in, in a little bit here, but I wanted to do something else. And going to school for photo, that was a passion of mine at the time, all throughout high school, I was doing it. And when I got to college, I think I only made it like two years and I left school. I never even graduated um, college. So I 
kind of bopped around a little bit with uh, working with my dad and trying to figure out other stuff and ultimately actually went to California, lived out there for a few years with the intent of going to school for dentistry. I know another uh, curveball there, but never even ended up going to school there, got a construction job working on high rise condos right on the beach. It was beautiful. And then, you know, the recession hit in what, 2008, 2009 really difficult time in California. I ended up moving back to New England and, you know, jumping into work with my father. I actually did nonprofit work for about a year, not construction related, and just really wasn't for me. Ultimately ended up finding my way back into a shop. And, you know, that was around 2009 and I haven't left the shop since. Uh, I worked for a few different companies since then. Started off in a, it was more of an event furniture company. So we would make furniture that was modular and different designs used at corporate events, smaller events, private parties, things like that. It wasn't single use furniture, but it wasn't anything high end or, you know, super complex. The tricky part was, yes, it all needs to be modular and fit through doorways or trucks, things like that. Uh, upon leaving there, I actually did work with my father building homes for a short bit and then found my way back into another shop. This one was a high-end cabinet-making shop. And, you know, like I said, I, I really fought it wanting to be in the construction industry. And eventually, it just kind of clicked for me working at this other shop and decided, you know what, this is it. This is what I want to do. It was in 2017, I decided I was going to start making moves to go off on my own, leave the company I was at, start my own business, my own cabinet shop, furniture shop. And I started, you know, doing the research, putting in the work to to make those moves. Actually met my current business partner, Nick, and we had a conversation. And, you know, like I said, I wasn't looking for another job, but ultimately ended up working for him at a company called NS Builders, where they were a general contractor. They did provide the cabinetry, but it was only partially built in-house. So I joined his team, set up the cabinet shop, and you know, fast forward four or five years, the cabinet shop basically grew into its own company. It was being really well received. We had a lot of inquiries for the work. And back in 2021, we decided to split the mill workshop off into its own company. And we did that January 1st, 2022. So it has been almost a year that we've been in business, and it has been a phenomenal year. It's a great story. It's got a lot of a lot of twists and turns, but it starts in the furniture building world and it ends in the furniture building world. And it's amazing how many people I talk to who have had a similar childhood where they they've learned how to build things from a family member or a friend and they they do that for a while and they think this is fine but i want to do something else and they go out into the wide world and try their hand at other things but always have that that building and that that thought of being able to build things in their back pocket and they come back to it but growing up in it you see all of the hard parts of the industry all of the long days and even longer nights trying to build things for timelines and how hard the industry is and sometimes unforgiving. And 
it also amazes me that people do decide to go into this industry. Yeah, I think you summed that up pretty well with, you know, being having that inside look to the industry when you are younger is exactly why I didn't want to be in it. Right. The the long and hard work that my father was doing. And, you know, you you kind of get this inside perspective into the industry. And I don't know how it is now for, you know, kids growing up in the industry. And I can only make assumptions. But, you know, back in like the 90s, when I was a kid going to work with him, it was tough. It was a lot of people were complaining about the job, about the work. And you get this inside look where there's basically the general consensus is there's no money to be made in the trades and it's blue collar work. You're kind of looked down upon people like frown upon working with your hands, you know, a generic kind of societal view. Right. So not everybody's looking at it that way. That's kind of the world that you're, you're brought up in. And for me, my father was always like, I want better for you. Right. So of course I'm not going to want to be in the trades if that's not a good lifestyle or not a good career path. I think things are kind of starting to change a little bit in that. But for me, when I was going growing up and going through it, like I never wanted to get involved in it because of those things. I was conditioned to think that I wasn't going to make much money in there. I wasn't going to be making a good living. I was just going to do backbreaking labor for the rest of my life. And it's just not true. And I think that's something that we really need to push kids or show kids. And it's something that we try to do when we're talking to the youth is that, you know, there is money to be made and it's not all backbreaking labor. And I don't remember a specific point where it turned for me when I was working that other shop, but the kind of general feeling was people do care. People look at the trades as, um, and there's a lot of companies that are like this, where it's hurry up, get it done. They don't care what it looks like. It's just about the bottom line and, you know, slapping something together and calling it a day. And it wasn't until I was at that shop and really got to see the, the time and the attention and the care that people did put into these these pieces and these projects. And it was like a totally different world for me. And it took a little bit of time. I fought it really hard. I did not want to be in the trades. You know, I wanted the, the white collar desk job, trading stock options or something. I don't know where I, I could wear a collared shirt every day, you know, and eventually just clicked where people do care. And I can make a good living working with my hands and building something that at the end of the day that I can be proud of. And still to this day, that's one of the coolest feelings is taking this pile of lumber, of plywood, or whatever it may be, and creating something truly amazing. At the end of the day, you get to stand back and that's what I did today. I built that. Or, you know, now we're starting to see these amazing projects come to life. And a lot of the stuff, you know, occasionally it does get published in magazines and things like that. It's a really cool feeling where you're like, I built that. I did that with my bare hands. I built that. I love that you brought up the shift in the industry because people who have been doing this for a certain amount of time, you know, I started my company back in 2008 and was building furniture even before that. And it used to be thought of as the trades. Like you said, it was a it was a profession that was looked down upon. Yes, it was something that people needed. Yes, it was something that you needed somebody to come into your house and build something or fix something, but it wasn't looked at like it is today where somebody who can build something with their hands are put on a pedestal. Now there's entire TV stations dedicated to it. There's magazines, there's 
social media that is going crazy over a beautifully built chair or a well-designed piece of furniture. And it's definitely, it's definitely a different industry than it used to be. And that's important for people to remember because it wasn't always like that. Yeah, for sure. And I think there's a couple different factors that are, that are kind of playing into that. You know, like you said, the whole social media side of it is definitely, you know, kind of bringing sexy back for that industry. And they are being able to showcase like, kind of like I was saying, the, the craftsmanship behind it. And it's like, yeah, you know what? This took me a really long time to make, but I'm really proud of this. And being able to showcase it and other people start to see it whether they're in the industry or not. And they're like, you know what? Hey, that is cool. I want that. And that's kind of how it starts for a lot of us, right? And a lot of the makers, we we build stuff for ourselves and friends and family. And then we start to showcase it online. And then you start, you know, getting random people that are like, hey, I want one of those. It doesn't matter what it is, whether it's, you know, cutting boards or furniture or cabinetry or even home building. And then you get the other side of it where it's the the builder community, the builders, the makers, everybody the community that's actually doing the same stuff too. And you guys are supporting one another and you're sharing tips and tricks. And it's like, it's leveling up everybody. I, I hear people talking about like, oh, well, you know, you're a cabinet maker building very expensive kitchens. What about the guy who's building them out of his garage for a couple thousand dollars? I'm like, you know, there's room for all of us. And, you know, maybe that's just the market right now, but there's definitely room for everybody. And there's a market for everybody. There's a place for everybody in this space. And I think the other side of it too, I said there was two points. The other side is a lot of the people who have graduated from high school or college in the earlier mid 2000s. And another reason, you know, for a lot of us, it was our families, the society in general was pushing us to go to college. And it, it was, you know, don't get a job in high school, go to, go to college, go to college, go to college, right? We were just fed that from a very young age. And a lot of us did. And then th those who did graduate in the you know mid 2000s are feeling it. You know, we we graduated into a an economy that was you know going down. It was great for a while, but then it was difficult. And then now the people that have, are are still stuck with massive amounts of debt. And I think a lot of that is people are now seeing like, oh, we all know plumbers that are clearing 200 grand a year. And meanwhile, I'm, you know, have this white collar job and I'm only making 80 grand a year and I have $200,000 in student debt. Hmm. What am I going to tell my kids to go and do? So now that they're having children that are, they may be looking at schools, I think parents are going to start pushing kids into the trades. They're starting to see, and I think it's probably cyclical, you know, then those kids will end up pushing their, their kids to go to college and so on and so forth. But I think there's a number of, of factors that are, that are pushing kids towards the trades and we actually did a um a high school youth event not too long ago and it was our first time at the event turnout was amazing there was tons and tons of kids hundreds of kids and they were actually genuinely interested in what we were doing they were asking really good questions it wasn't like basic stuff like they were getting kind of down into the weeds about some of the stuff that we were doing and we're watching this around you know all the different trades that were there this was happening everywhere and, you know, talking to people after who had done it for multiple years, they were even saying that this was the best year that they've had in a long time. So I think we're starting to to see that push. And, you know, everybody's talking to about the, the skilled trades gap. So hopefully as these kids are starting to come out of school, they start going down the, the trades path and it helps 
to close that gap here in the next few years. There's also this this great shift in the industry of people in general who are moving towards the trades, we'll say furniture, but also the trades in general. And they're they're getting an understanding of the building, but they're understanding the the business side too, which really brings the industry together. Because I think that the problem for a long time was that people were great at the trade, great at building something, working with their hands, but they weren't necessarily great at the business side. And that is what made the business so hard. Don't get me wrong. Even if you know every part of the business side and the trade side, it's still a hard industry to be in. But having that that business side, having that white collar and blue collar part of your mind working at the same time brings a new level to the industry. Yeah, for sure. I totally agree with that. And, you know, we even still know people today that are like, hey, I pursued, you know, the the furniture making or starting my own company. And I did it for a while and it was great, but I don't want to do the bookkeeping side. I don't want to do the the business side. And, you know, whether they fold their companies or not, it's I think it's good to find that out um, and, and kind of take that that leap. And you know what? Hey, it's not for you. That's totally fine. There's nothing wrong with that. If you decide that the running a business part isn't what you're passionate about and you want to go and work some work for someone else, there's no shame in that. That's totally fine and acceptable. And it's probably good that you figured it out rather than sit there always working for somebody else and never knowing and always kind of having that eat, eat at you if you did want to go off and pursue your own your own path. This is obviously a, an important topic for both of us. And we could keep talking about youth in the trades and how there's the resurgence and how it's a an industry that people want to be a part of again. But I want to go and get into your own company and how you built that. I really like that you said a little while ago that there's room in this industry for everybody, for the garage builder all the way up to the shop owner who's running a 20, 30 person crew. Because there is a lot of different ways you can run a company And there's a lot of different ways that you can start a company. And I want to talk to you about the way you started your company because it's different than a lot of ways I've heard before. Usually it's you have the idea you want to go out on your own. And you had that idea back in 2017 where you thought, I want to have my own furniture company. But then you went and worked for somebody and you were doing that while thinking about running your own company. And that is a a timeline that a lot of people have where they're working for another company, but in their mind, they're thinking, I'm going to go out on my own. And usually you leave the company you're working with and start your own thing, but you stayed with that company and then did an offshoot of that into something that became your own or a co-owner, but it was your own company. First, how did you think this was a good option to do? And secondly, how did you actually put that into action? Yeah, it certainly is uh, a unique situation. Um, 
especially in comparison to, you know, a lot of other people's pursuits. Like you said, they, they just decide they want to go off. They kind of do the burn the candle at both ends while working for another company and then eventually make the shift. And that's kind of where I was at, you know, like in 2017, when I started working with Nick, I hadn't thought about going off on my own for a while. Like things were, were really good. And in a sense, it was my own shop. Like he wasn't there to micromanage me. It, I was a driving factor in, in building that shop up. And it really felt like my own and for a long time. And, you know, eventually it was just like, hey, you know what? I'm I'm just an employee. And those thoughts started coming back where I'm going to go off my own. And I had really started thinking about that again. And kind of the position that the company was in, we were only providing millwork for the general contracting side of the business. We kept it really exclusive. And we always had people that were inquiring for our millwork, other builders, even just homeowners. But oftentimes those projects didn't really fit the business model of the general contracting side of the company. So it was a little bit of um, a no-go, right? So we just kept supplying the work to the GC. And in 2021, early 2021, you know, like January or February, Nick had actually approached me about splitting the millwork company off and doing it as a partnership. And, you know, it was really interesting timing because I was considering leaving and going off on my own again at that point. And at the time he didn't know that, you know, we spoke about it since it was interesting timing for him to bring that up. But I think he saw the value in if I'm part of it, then we're going to, I'm the driving force behind, this sounds very egotistical here. Um, but, you know, wow, this, this, this went down a hole. Um, no, it's fine because I, you know, <laughs> I, I'll I'll say it for you because I feel like you, you know, you don't want to say it, but ego is invested in a company that is yours. You work harder for something that is yours rather than working for somebody else. So it's a totally understandable feeling to say the company will do better if you're putting more into it because you are fully invested in it instead of just showing up and collecting a paycheck. Yeah, totally. And that's kind of ultimately you know, where we ended up is the conversation started with a partnership between him and I. And I thought about it a lot, you know, long and hard and had these conversations with my wife about whether or not it was a good idea or not. And should I pursue, you know, my own thing? Do I really want to enter into a partnership with somebody and kind of tie my boat to theirs for what could be, you know, the rest of our lives. Hopefully, you know, this is a very long-term thing here and it's not just a, you know, a fluke, but it was a, a very difficult decision to actually consider. Half the company is someone else's. Is that a path that I want to go down? And, you know, yeah, there was a lot of thought put into this. And ultimately, of course, we're, you know, we're here in the situation. I, I decided to pursue it. And, Still to this day, you know, it's only been a year, but I think it was a great decision. I think it will continue to be a great decision. And, you know, the work that we're involved in, we get to work on some really incredible projects. And it's the stuff that I want to be doing. So I'm happy the company's doing well. And, you know, we're going to we're going to continue to do so. For people who might be in a, a similar situation, maybe they are looking to co-found a company with somebody they're working with or do an offshoot of a company that they're already working at, or they're just looking to get a partner 
in a business. When you were thinking through this, in in a sense, making a pros and cons list of why working with somebody as a co-founder is a good idea or a bad idea, what were some of the things that you were thinking through that that you ultimately decided on? Yeah, that's um, there's a lot there. You know, um, one of the biggest things is like work balance. Am I going to be doing more work than my partner? Is my partner going to be doing more work than me? Is the split fair? And that was kind of something that that kept going back and forth, um, weighing pretty heavily. And then, of course, with that is the financial side of it. You know, if we're splitting this company, you know, right down the middle two ways, is my partner earning his paycheck? Am I earning my paycheck in my partner's eyes? You know, it's it's a two-way street. This whole thing is a two-way street once you get involved into a partnership. And I think, you know, having these conversations and being open about it is important. And, you know, the of course, the finances are a huge part of this. We all want to put food on the table so that we can have, you know, the home that we want, the car that we want, you know, whatever else we, we want to do with our lives. The financial side is huge. And I think that's a, an area that a lot of us don't want to talk about and, you know, kind of shy away from. And we all have a lifestyle that we want to live. We all have goals and visions. And if you're not aligned with your partner, especially in the finance side of it, then I think you can get into trouble pretty quickly. So having those conversations, being open and honest about them from both sides is important. And same thing when making that decision, kind of looping my wife into that. It's like, hey, are we going to be okay? If the company does well, here's what we're projected to make. If it does bad, then here's what I'm projected to make. I could lose a lot. We could be relying on one income. And if you have a spouse or even children, it's more than a, a conversation for you to have you know, with yourself. You need to loop your partner, your, your life partner into that conversation because they are going to be hugely affected by that. Kind of going back a little bit to answer another question that you had asked, if somebody is in that situation um, and whether they're looking to partner with their current employer or partner with somebody else, I think just be open and honest and have that conversation and it might not work out. You know, maybe the person says, no, I was told no. I was told no multiple times. And, you know, look at us now several years down the road and we're, we've started a really successful, we've had an incredible first year looking into our next year, 2023, we're already booked out for the full year. So we're on a really good trajectory and it's great. Be patient. I wouldn't jump into anything that, you know, you don't want to. It took us about a year to, to get everything rolling on materia. And it was a lot of careful consideration on both of our parts, but it all starts with a conversation. You can't expect people to know what you want if you don't tell them. And that's, you know, something that goes through more than just a business partnership. You know, you you can't expect your spouse or your friends or your employer to know the things that you you want if you're not vocal about them, if you don't talk about them. And that doesn't necessarily mean be the squeaky wheel. I mean, that works for some people, but, you know, a lot of people don't. Don't really like the squeaky wheel, but everything is communication and having a conversation. It's so true. And with business partners, with clients, you know, any part of your business or personal life, if you're not explaining yourself, if you're not being vocal about what you want, you can't expect the other party, whether it's a business partner, an employee, a client you can't expect them to to always pick up on what you need so explaining yourself and 
like you said, not as a squeaky wheel necessarily, but explaining yourself in an appropriate way for the situation goes a very long way in running a business and also keeping you mentally uh, healthy and not driving yourself crazy. I, I completely hear you on that. You said earlier that people shy away from talking about the financial side usually. And that's true because money is always a difficult topic to talk about with other people. People have different thoughts on it. People have different ideas of what they need or what they want or what they expect they should get. But also, like you said, if you don't talk about it, then you never know the way you feel about it or the way other people feel about it. So let's get into the financial part, the money side of a business. I do want to talk about the financial side of clients and how you set that up, because this was already a business. You had already been running this business for five plus years, and you already had a business structure in place and the way you were running the shop and the way you were paying people. But those jobs were all internal. Once you opened it up to the public, once you became a shop that was taking on jobs outside, I'm sure your business model and by extension, your pricing changed. What did you change when you became a company that was taking on projects for the public? And how did you go about doing that? Yeah, so we really just had to kind of sit down and run through all the numbers as you would with any business, right? You have your cost of goods, so all of your material costs, things like that. Then you have, you know, labor costs and overhead. And I think overhead is where a lot of people maybe miss the mark on, especially smaller companies, probably even more so like we were talking the the one guy in his garage. He is probably or she is probably putting in so much extra time that they're not accounting for or billing for that makes growth difficult. And I'll explain that in a second. So when we sat down and looked at all of these numbers as a separate business, we ended up, so the way that we're billing, we take our, you know, cost of goods as everybody does, our labor costs, all of that, and we mark it up so that we can cover all of our overhead, you know, shop space. We have vans, electric bills, tools, everything, right? There's, there's so much that goes into overhead. And if we had kept our pricing structure the same as when it was under the GC, we wouldn't have been able to survive. We wouldn't have been billing enough because the GC was absorbing a lot of those overhead costs. So we had to change our markup. We had to, you know, our, our markup increased to be totally transparent with it to cover all those additional costs. And one of the things I said, I was going to get back to the, the conversation of the person not billing for their time. So as small business owners, oftentimes that we're probably putting in extra hours, whether it's bookkeeping or design, things like that, where we're not necessarily directly billing client for. And maybe some of these smaller shops are only billing cost of uh, materials and their labor. They're not putting in any of that additional back-end work and maybe not even charging a markup to, to capture any of that time. And maybe that works for you. Maybe that, you know, you are small enough where that is totally fine. You're making a good living off doing that. You're happy. And there's nothing wrong with that if it works for you. But if you're trying to grow your business and scale your business and bring on somebody else, right? Let's say you bring in somebody to do some of those tasks for you. 
how are you going to pay them? If you're not capturing that time, those hours, and billing for it accordingly, you're going to be stuck in this wheel where you're doing all of that work for free. And then when you do go to bring somebody in, you won't be able to afford them. So you will eventually need to charge more. But if you bring somebody on right away, what do you, your price is going to double or triple overnight? You know, are your clients, especially repeat clients, going to be okay with that? Are you in a market where that is possible? But accounting for that, making sure that you have the 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 pricing structure in place to capture some of that is going to be helpful to you in the long run. And taking some of that stuff off your plate is also going to be good for your mental health too. You know, nobody wants to be trapped at work all hours of the night or come home and you know, they just spent a day in the shop. Now they got to come home and bill all of these clients or design another project at home. And, you know, it takes away time from their spouses, their kids, anything like that. Being able to capture that time, bill for it accordingly, hire somebody who can do the work for you. And I don't mean to sub everything out. And if you enjoy doing those things then totally do them, but bookkeeping, right? We don't want to be doing that. That's the last thing any one of us makers wants to be doing is running the numbers, keeping track of receipts, all of that stuff. If you can afford to hire somebody else out to do that or start working that into your pricing structure, if it's going to cost you maybe an extra 5% on each project to have a virtual assistant or maybe it's somebody in the shop or, or in your office and have them come in a couple days a week, one day, once a week, whatever it may be, then start working that into your pricing so that you can sub that out. And then that opens up so much more space. So you're almost wasting a lot of your time by trying to do it all. And I don't think that's sustainable. You talking about hiring and employees and when it's appropriate for you as the business owner to do something versus having an employee or outsourcing it is a perfect setup for where I want to go in this conversation next. And that is about employees and scaling up because that is a that's a problem that a lot of people have where they don't know when the right time to scale their company up is. And you're a great example of this because right now you have a five plus person shop. So you have employees, you've been doing that for a while. And you've already said that you're booked out for the entire upcoming year. And so somebody from the outside would say they already have employees, they have work coming in, they know that they have a busy schedule, so they should automatically scale. But that balance of when the right time to scale is, is a hard one to do because when things are good, you're moving forward and you think I could keep hiring, I could keep hiring, but there's always that that fear of things going down and then having people having people's career having people's lives livelihoods in your hands so what is that situation in your head that makes you think now is the right time to scale or yes we're overburdened but we should hold off yeah and that's a tricky one to answer it's not so cut and dry and i don't necessarily think that there's a a right time or a wrong time and it also depends on what you want for your company. If you want to be booked out, you know, one year and the workload is good and you're satisfied with that, you're making, you know, the money that you want to be making, you're getting the projects you want to be doing, then keep it there and just keep rolling with it. Um, but if you want to grow and we're in a growth mindset where we're at right now, 
then by all means, you know, hit the gas and let's go for it. When it comes to guys in the shop, we are actually currently hiring. So we are booked out for the full year next year. And we're looking at that whole year, but daily we're getting people that are reaching out to us with really cool projects that we would love to be a part of. And we're having to turn them down. And we're, we want to grow the business. We want to grow the shop. We want to take on some more projects, do some of this cool work. Um, so how do we do that? Well, we need to bring in more guys into the shop. So we are actively hiring for additional shop help. And I think that's kind of the deciding factor on when you bring in people or when you don't. If you're comfortable with where you're at, being booked out, great. You don't need to bring anybody on. If you are looking to to grow the business, you are getting the projects to support that, the work to support bringing on additional help, then by all means, let's do it. So that's kind of the position that we're in. If there's the work to support what you want to be doing and you're you're ready to go, I say, you know, hit, hit the hit the gas, bring on some people and uh, continue to take on the projects. Every company's different. Everybody's looking for for different things in their employees. So this can't be an overarching statement from you. But for somebody who is looking to hire their their first employee for their business, what some of the general questions you ask in an interview, what are you overall looking for in an applicant that if somebody was hiring their first employee, they should also be thinking about when they're bringing somebody on. So this is also, you know, a difficult one to answer because I do feel like this is an area that I struggle with myself. And it is something that I've had these conversations with other companies to kind of see what their hiring process is like. And it, it almost seems like this is not an issue, but, you know, a question across the board with a lot of other businesses that I've even talked to. Like we, we're not sure. And, you know, how do you truly judge somebody that's coming in and they say, Hey, I have all this experience. I can do X, Y, and Z without actually getting them into the shop. And you're making a commitment to them by bringing them on. And then what happens when they get there and they're not what they said, how do you weed that out? And that has been incredibly difficult. I think the social media side of this has helped a lot in that regard where you are able to see a person's work, of course, if they are on social media and if they actually share some of their projects, but you get to see an idea of what they do. And then, you know, in that kind of interview process, there's, you know, I, I don't have a list of questions that I ask everybody. It's just more conversational. You know, we, we chat about what they have done, what they're currently doing, what types of tooling that they use, um, what their future goals are, what they would like to be doing, what their ideal day looks like. You know, we don't want somebody in the shop that would rather be in the field installing or sitting behind a desk. You know, that that doesn't create a good environment for them. And we're not going to get the best out of them. They're not going to be happy. And at the end of the day, we, we want our people to be happy. We want everybody that works for us to, you know, like what they do and stick around for the long term. If we're pushing them off in a quarter and making them, you know, do nothing but sand all day long, you know, they're not going to be happy over there. So a big one for me is the passion that they have for the the industry. We've had people that come in and kind of yes you to death uh, during an interview and are just kind of looking off blankly or like you can see there's no no passion there. You know, maybe that's not the right fit. And you can kind of get a sense for, for that when you're interviewing, when you're face-to-face sitting down with these people and kind of walking through the shop, 
you know, that's, that's another thing. We'll start the interview off in the office, then we'll go through the shop. So if they're walking through your shop, you kind of talk about the tools, how to use them, and let them answer those questions, kind of giving you a, a feel for, you know, what their experience is. You know, we've had people that come through who were, oh, yeah, you know, that jointer over there, I, I know how to use that. You know, the one that I use is much smaller, but, you know, I know how to use it or so on and so forth. Great. You know, that's fine that you haven't used the large jointer before. You understand the process behind it as long as, you know, you keep those fundamentals and, of course, the safety aspect. We'll teach you how to use this big one and you'll be off and running and no problem. But when you're coming in asking like, oh, what's a what's a jointer? Well, and you want to be, you know, a lead cabinet maker or a lead furniture maker and you don't know what a jointer is, maybe, maybe that's not the right fit or um, we need to start you off on more of an apprentice level program. Your shop obviously is growing and you're hiring people who can build things and build things well. And looking through the portfolio of your past work, you can see that you make very impressive, very high end, very high quality furniture. So it's not really a question of can your shop build something because anything that a client brings to you, you're going to be able to build. But with that said, Every job that comes across your desk isn't always going to be a good fit. It's not always going to work for your company. You can build it, but it might not work on the business side of your business. People who own their own companies, their own furniture companies, struggle with this a lot. With the idea of being a custom shop and wanting to grow and always wanting to make money, but they struggle with the idea of if it's the right job for them, if it's the right client for them, because it might be a disservice to their company and it might actually hurt them instead of help them when they take it on. What do you think about when a project comes your way, how you decide if it's the right project for you and your team to take on? Yeah, that's a, that's a really great question. And it, again, there's there's no right or wrong answer to this. You know, I guess right off the bat is, does it look like a project that is interesting to you? And for us, we're in a position where, you know, we only want to work on projects that, you know, we like or that we're interested in or, um, you know, that, that, that may teach us something or challenge us in the right right way, you know. We're not just this assembly line pumping out the same thing all day. I mean, that's one of the great things about working in the custom world. But, you know, we have a few questions that we ask right off the bat. If like a client cold approaches us like, hey, I want, you know, a table or some built-ins, whatever it may be. You know, we ask them a handful of questions right off the bat. And uh, one of them is timeline. When, when do you want this done to see if it fits within our schedule? And one of them is budget. And these two questions alone weed out most of the tire kickers because let's be honest, there's a lot of time that we spend working with people on the front end before we even get paid or potentially even have an agreement or contract with them for a piece of furniture. So we ask those two questions right off the bat and they're pretty uncomfortable questions. The timeline one, not so much, but when you ask them what their budget is for this piece, that's uncomfortable for them. They oftentimes will give you the, I haven't thought about it and you know, I don't want to call anybody a liar here, but like there's a number. There's there's a number where you're comfortable paying and a number that you're not. And 
you know, the way we've kind of worked around that is if somebody's like, oh, I'm not sure I haven't thought about it. Then we throw out like, okay, in the past, a table like this or a kitchen like this has cost X. Does that sound within, you know, reasonable to you? Does it sound within your budget? Things like that. And, you know, to be honest, most of the time we never hear back from the person once we tell them a ballpark price like that. And you know what? That's totally fine. I, um, I can understand that. But that pretty quickly weeds out a lot of the, the projects that come across. I think maybe the opposite might be true if you're just getting started and you want to start making a name for yourself and build up a portfolio. You know, maybe then you have to do some projects that don't get you as excited. But you also want to be careful not to get stuck in that rut of just doing uh, the this one type of project or just building the same table over and over again. You want to diversify a little bit. You want to get, you know, something else that you're excited about. So saying yes to the same project is, you know, over and over again can be tough, especially when you're dependent upon that money. But, you know, the saying no is probably one of the hardest things that you can do. And especially when it's, you know, an awesome project, an awesome, you know, dollar amount, let's say, but maybe you're just not as excited about that project, but it's hard to say no to, you know, 10 grand when it's, you know, being dangled in front of you. And, you know, that 10 grand will go pretty far for the next couple of weeks or months. And to say no is, is tough. It's tricky, you know, especially if maybe you don't have something else coming through the pipeline. And those are the decisions where, you know, you really need to sit back and say, Hey, do I have anything else in, in the works? Are there any trees I can shake to see see what falls out? You know, there's this other project over here that they've been talking about doing. I can ask them if they're ready to move forward. Sometimes the answer is yes, sometimes the answer is no. And, you know, you do have to take on some of those projects every once in a while, especially early on. And we've done it. We still get projects today that we're, we just don't get excited about and we have to turn them, turn them down. And it's tough because people are coming to you because they want the product that you're offering. And it's almost like you're letting them down or disappointing them. And, you know, we don't want to let anybody down or disappoint anybody, but at the same time, if it's not the right fit, it's not the right fit. And, you know, you got to do what's best for you and for your business. And really only, you know what that is in that moment, but saying no is very difficult, but is very necessary. The biggest view we all have into furniture making is social media. And that is where, a lot of us are either getting our inspiration, getting our tips and tricks, getting our advice, getting our community. It's our window into the furniture industry. But a lot of social media is a highlight reel, is all of the the good parts of the business, all the triumphs, all of the best cuts, all the best looking pieces of furniture all the the best parts of the industry and it sometimes leaves people forgetting that there are bad parts there are hard parts there are things that don't go right there are projects that don't work out the way you want them to and you have to keep working at them to make them right you've been in this industry for a long time you've been doing this for yourself for other companies and you've seen a lot of the industry, the good and the bad. How do you deal with you personally and you as a company? How do you deal with the bad parts of the industry, the the bad builds, the the hard clients? How do you keep 
the the building to the quality that you need it to and also the morale in the shop yeah that's that's very true you know about the the social media stuff and only posting the the good items the good the pretty pictures right we often call them the pretty pictures and you know there is a lot of bad that goes along with there's a lot of mistakes that are made there's a lot of extra time you know if we're budgeting you know, a certain amount of hours for a project and we go over what happens. Nobody ever talks or sees about sees that side of the business, or at least they didn't. I think that social media in general has changed that a little bit. And it started with people showcasing their mistakes and talking about them because we're all going through the same issues. We all make mistakes. We've all gone over on hours and maybe we didn't, you know, hit our target numbers. We went over budget, whatever it might be. And how are we dealing with that? How are we rolling through all that stuff? And, you know, it's not talked about too much, but like I said, there are people that are out there showcasing that. And I think it's by showcasing that, Hey, we make mistakes. We're not all perfect. And, you know, from the outside, maybe the company looks amazing or fantastic, but struggles internally. And, you know, we're no different. We've made our fair share of mistakes. You know, I've, I've certainly made my share of mistakes and it's kind of how we get through them and how we, you know, come out the other side that I think really helps define who we are and how we handle all of that. Kind of taking a step back, I think we've all worked for or have seen other companies where somebody makes a mistake and the boss freaks out, loses it, screams and shouts and yells. What does that do? That's not, nobody's happy about that. Nobody wants to like come and work for you. And, you know, you talk about morale. There's a real surefire way to put morale down is start screaming and shouting at somebody. And then nobody's going to want to come in and work hard for you the next day. Even if it's not the person that you're screaming and shouting at, it could be just somebody who's witnessing that. Nobody wants to do that. Sure, maybe they're not going to make a mistake or they're going to be a little more careful, but I highly doubt that. And having someone that's unmotivated is just, it's a recipe for disaster. Like, we don't want that for our team. I don't want somebody like that, you know, working for us. And I certainly don't want to put somebody in that position. And what does it fix? It doesn't fix anything. It doesn't fix the mistake that they made. You know, that board is still going to be cut too short. You know, that that part is still going to have to be remade, whatever it might be. And sure, it can be frustrating, but, you know, nothing, nothing comes from getting, you know, angry or upset about it. And I think taking those opportunities to use them as uh, a learning opportunity. Sometimes it's just a mistake and it's an accident, but other times you can kind of trace it back with like, oh, I wasn't clear about the instruction here or one of the measurements was wrong and whatever it may be. And kind of for me, Personally, that's kind of how I like to tackle mistakes is, especially when I'm making them, is how and why did I make this mistake? I want to get down to like the root of that problem and figure out where I went wrong. There are people who who are on the doorstep of starting their own furniture company. And there are also people who have been doing this for decades, who have learned from all these opportunities that have come their way and they've grown their business, but they don't feel like they're getting enough out of it. So from your experience in this industry, you've been in it for a while and have seen all different sides of it. What's some advice that you could share with furniture business owners that has helped you run a successful business? So I think one of the the biggest things that I often tell, especially, you know, people that are coming into this industry for the first time, young people, people that have switched careers, maybe just, you know, they're, let's say they're, they're green coming into this industry, pretty green is to be a sponge. And what I mean by that is 
soak in everything that's kind of happening around you and learn from it. So when you're when you're new to the industry or new to the shop, like what are the other people doing? How are they doing things? If you can be a sponge and just kind of take in all of what is happening around you, you're going to learn a lot faster. You're going to be more probably grow within the company a bit faster. You're going to just catch on to a lot of these things and it'll really help project your career. And I think this also carries over to business owners. You can definitely learn what to do from a lot of people, but you can also learn what not to do from people. You know, maybe you're watching your current employer. If you're thinking about going off on your own and your current employer does something that you don't necessarily agree with, well, let's take that and kind of write it into your business model, how you would do things differently and, and learning from there. There's no perfect solution. There's no one size fits all solution. And every single job that we do, every project, we're learning something new, whether it's from the fabrication side or from the business side where we're we're learning what to put into our agreements with clients or how to price things out. Everything is going to be a learning opportunity and it's ever evolving. It's it's not going to be perfect. There's you know, I like to say the endless pursuit of perfection, right? We all, everybody wants to be perfect, but you know, you're never going to be there. So the sooner you can kind of realize that and just everything is going to be a work in progress and, you know, come to terms with that. And, you know, you, you'll be probably a little bit happier and, you know, business might be a little more successful. Don't stop learning no matter where you yeah. are and where, no matter where you are in your business, keep, keep learning, keep pursuing keep reaching for the next thing and hopefully you will find it and i want to thank you for for sharing all of this wisdom and all of this advice and letting us all be a sponge to the quality of advice that you are sharing so i really do appreciate you sitting down and and sharing your story and i wish you nothing but the best of success moving forward thanks ethan i really appreciate that you as well Thanks so much for listening to Building a Furniture Brand with Ethan Abramson. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe to this podcast anywhere you like to listen. To learn more about the show, you can visit buildingafurniturebrand.com. And feel free to reach out anytime to say hey, ask a question, or suggest a guest for future episodes. Our email is hello at buildingafurniturebrand.com. You can follow along with me on Instagram at TheBuildWithEthan, and I can't wait to bring you the next episode. This show is produced and edited by me, Ethan Abramson. Hope you enjoyed, and thanks so much for listening. The Building a Furniture Brand with Ethan Abramson podcast is proudly part of the Woodpreneur Network, the media network and community for wood entrepreneurs. Check out woodpreneurlife.com for more information.